Harvard Divinity School. The Islamic Conception of Arabness, a new reading of the Quranic Discourse on the Arab, July 20th, 2023. Um, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Gosha Skodowska, I'm the Associate Director here at the Center for the Study of World Religions at the Divinity School. And we're thrilled to be partnering with Professor Mohsen Udarzi and Trashi Koyal for this very special talk. Um, Professor um, Kudarzi is um, a faculty member here at Divinity School, a religion scholar and specializing in Quranic studies. Um, and um, it is a special event because for those of you who um, have been following CSWR events, we usually don't do much programming over the summer. Summer is considered to be a slow time here on campus. And this makes it even more special to see how much interest there is in Rashid's talk today. Um, we have um, gathering here on campus and more than 90 people who um, have registered and are there virtually uh, joining us from across Boston area and the world. Uh, so thank you all for being here. Um, before I hand it over to Professor Gudarzi, I will just mention that we have some fantastic programming on the horizon for the next academic year. Um, and this will include our very popular Noziologies and Poetry series, uh, Psychedelics and the Future of Religion series, um, lectures, annual lectures, music, uh, performances, and art exhibits, and more. Uh, so please stay tuned for this information. We'll be including lots of information about this programming in one of our August newsletters. And for those of you who haven't uh, joined us yet uh, from our mailing list, please do so. So with this, I'm going to hand everything over to Professor Gudarzi. Thank you all for being here and welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome everyone. Welcome to those who are present here today and to those who are joining us um, online by Zoom. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm really grateful to Professor Charles Stang for hosting this event, to Gosha Sklodowska for uh, integrating it within the CSWR's uh, programming, and to Lori Sedgwick, if I can find her for it, thank you, <laughs> coordinating and promoting the event. Um, we're really excited about this uh, talk. Um, the speaker today is uh, Rashid Goyal. Um, Rashid is a scholar of the uh, languages, uh, literatures, and the history of uh, early Islamic and pre-Islamic Arabia. He is interested in particular in the development of political and legal uh, ideas and thought in the first centuries of Islam. And uh, he's going to finish, he's on the cusp of finishing his uh, uh, PhD at Cornell University's Near Eastern Studies Department. I believe the defense is within, within the next week or so. Um, and then after that, he'll be taking up a postdoctoral position at the University of Tübingen in Germany uh, under the Law Project, which stands for the Quran as a source for late antiquity. Uh, and directed by Professor Holger Zelentin, uh, who I think may be joining us online today. So if he is, hello, Holger. <laughs> nice to have you with us. Um, so the title of the talk today is The Islamic Conception of Arabness, a new reading of the Quranic discourse on the Arab. Uh, this is a really important topic in general in the past few decades. The study of early Islam and the Quran has been very much dynamic and active. And one of the questions that scholars have had is, 
how did the Prophet Muhammad's earliest followers conceptualize their own identity, their ethnic identity, their tribal identity, their religious identity. So this, talks go, this talk goes to the heart of that uh, important subject and we're really excited to hear it. So without further ado, uh, I'll just ask you to welcome Rashid Goyal and ask him to take the podium. Thank you. Thank you all for being here uh, virtually and in person. And thank you to Professor Godarzi and to Gosha and to uh, Lori uh, for their gracious invitation and for having me. So the Islamic conception of Arabness takes us to the term Arab in the Quran. So the Quranic Arab is the topic of our discussion. Who indeed are these Arab that appear in 10 passages in the Quran, uh, all of which are in surahs or chapters that are traditionally held to be amongst the last to be revealed. The traditional reading tells us that they are Bedouin, right? And that's more or less the consensus in modern uh, scholarship as well. And just to clarify, the term Arab has always, or the term Arab has always denoted Arabs and denotes Arabs today. There's no problem there. This is a different term. This is Arab. And this belongs strictly to the classical Islamic discourse. One cannot today speak in any modern colloquial dialect and say such and such people are Arab and be understood as intending uh, that they are Bedouin. It would be unintelligible. And in formal modern Arabic, only in the context of citing the Quran or citing the classical discourse is this word used. And the possibility that the Quran is speaking of uh, Arabs instead of Bedouin has not really ever been given much, uh, it's not been considered seriously very much at all, partly because the Arab are a disliked and disparaged group. So they don't have a very good status in the Quran. And according to Islamic tradition, they are nomads. And nomadism is in itself associated with a kind of lack of sophistication, uh, lack of piety, a coarseness of character, um, antithetical, basically, to urban Islam. So was this attitude already in place at the time of the Quran's revelation? And if not, what does that mean for our understanding of Quran and our understanding of Arabness? Okay, so the most kind of um, frequently cited passage in the Quran uh, tells us that the Arabs say, we have faith, but Prophet tell them you do not have faith. You should instead say, Aslamna, we have submitted, for faith has not yet entered your hearts. Okay, this is in uh, Al-Fatih, and this is one of the very last surahs to be revealed according to tradition. In Tawbah, typically considered as to be either the last of all or the penultimate surah to be revealed, we learned that the Arab and uh, the context is describing people who did not participate in fighting. Some of the Arab also come to make excuses and they ask to be granted exception. Those who lied to God and his messenger stayed behind at home. A painful punishment will afflict those of them who disbelieved. And then we have some qualifications for those who 
whose status is not uh, blameworthy. And later in the same chapter, the Arab are the most stubborn of all peoples in their disbelief and hypocrisy. They're the least likely to recognize the limits, the hudud that God has sent down to his messenger. And God is knowing and all wise. Uh, some of the Arab consider what they give of charity or what they contribute to the community to be an imposition. They are waiting for fortune to turn against you, but fortune will turn against them. Finally, though, there is a qualification. There are also some Arab who believe in God in the last day, and they consider their contributions as bringing them nearer to God. Uh, so besides this passage, this verse 99, however, in every instance that the Arab appear, the tone is decidedly negative. Okay, I did not translate it, uh, the term Arab, but in any European translation of the Quran, we find something just like this. And I mean, Gabriel Reynolds' translation is actually based on an earlier one, so it's not uh, specific to this translation. But as you see here, the Bedouins say, uh, Blasher, the Bedouin. Uh, in fact, Blasher even subscribes to this view that the, the conversion of these Bedouin was, was superficial. That these Bedouin that are intended by all of these passages, they are intended because they did not convert uh, wholeheartedly. This is a very problematic view for many reasons, but as we will see. Uh, you also sometimes see the desert Arabs. Now that seems to be considering the possibility that they are in fact Arabs, but in fact it really isn't, because the word desert is nowhere in the Qur'an. Right? So Abdul Hanim, for example, he's saying that A'rab is specific to this group that are in the desert and no other. And so this is saying more or less the same thing. Um, the Swedish theologian uh, Ringgren earlier proposed a similar view. Yeah, Ringgren proposed a meaning of Islam and Aslama that I think uh, Professor Gudarzi has now shown to be problematic. Uh, and Professor Gudarzi proposes that this was not some kind of theological conception of the divinity, but one that was focused on cult and expressions of piety. Uh, Iman, belief, as opposed to Islam, submission. Uh, this discourse will need to be altered even more uh, if we relinquish the conception of the Arab as specifically nomads uh, and consider what the verses are telling us if the addressees are certain Arabs. Okay, so the Quran is regarded as the superlative illustration of spoken uh, or formal Arabic of the 6th and 7th century CE. Arabic, and particularly Quranic Arabic, is frequently the basis for how we decipher Semitic materials for which we have a much more limited sample. Uh, for instance, inscriptions in ancient Semitic languages from North and South Arabia uh, are read very much in the light of uh, Arabic. Uh, poetry, which dates to pre the pre-Islamic era as well as the Islamic era, is kind of an opposite scenario because we have a lot of poetry. But generally, uh, and I think here there's an impact of the classical view of the Quran's sanctity as precluding it being held to the direct light of kind of poetical specimens. Uh, 
And so poetry really doesn't get used very much. Uh, so what is and is not attested in the Qur'an, or to put it differently, what we think the Qur'an tells us has guided much of modern scholarship. Uh, so for instance, the fact that the Qur'an is concerned with these Bedouin groups has been assumed more or less as just the, the text at a prima facie level. Uh, and in the Quranic studies paradigm, uh, especially as, as it exists today and in the last few decades, the hadith or the oral and written tradition broadly is usually considered as inadmissible evidence or evidence fit to be entertained only speculatively. So what I'm going to do today really is focused very much on those two sources that I just mentioned, poetry and epigraphy. And I will not cite today any traditions, exegetical traditions or legal traditions. Uh, not because I think that's the way to proceed, not at all, but because I think the burden of evidence is so great, it's important to clarify that the language itself does not point us in the direction that the tradition has kind of arrived at. Um, so I'll begin by just reading this passage by David Heinrich Müller, uh, published in Austrian newspaper, Neue Freie Presse, in 1894. Oh, this is very small for me to read. Maybe I'll just, okay, so I'll read the translation here. It is a widespread and deeply rooted error, which is here exposed and corrected for the first time, that the peoples and tribes of the peninsula have always called themselves Arabs. In fact, the masses of people who have proudly professed and called themselves Arabs since the advent of Muhammad did not know the names Arabs and Arabia in pagan times. When the, when the pagan poets extol the virtues of the individual tribes, the national or geographical term Arabia is unknown to them. If they want to speak of all Arab tribes, if they want to express that something is common property of the entire Arab race known to them, they say all of Ma'ad knows it. And this Ma'ad is at least the mythical and common ancestor of, Nor of the North Arabian race, not Arab. It was only Muhammad who united the Arab Arabian tribes into one nation and formed them into a religious and state community who spoke of an Arabic language and an Arabic Quran. The abstract Arabia is also not known in the Quran. So, this incidentally appeared in a very normal newspaper. As you can see, there are patent leather chair ads and chocolate ads in the phaeton or the ground floor of the front page. And so on some day in 1894, April, Austrians had their coffee and croissant, or I don't know, is that what they have in Vienna, <laughs> in the morning, and they read about pre-Islamic Arabia and the meaning of Arabness, which I, I find that just incredible. Because uh, this is an exceedingly learned article. It's not really toned down at all. Um, and it invited a response from uh, Theodore Noldeka, another very well-known Orientalist, who said, this silence that you speak of uh, is not really the case. There are many shawahid, or witnesses, for a concept of Arab and Arab Arabness in the pre-Islamic period. And so by my count, Noldeka uh, in the Encyclopedia Biblica uh, mentioned nine different witnesses. Um, following Noldeka, this 
you know, topic has been looked at very fleetingly, Watt, uh, von Grunbaum, uh, but no one has really gone back to see what can we really say about this corpus. Is, is there something we can add to it, or is this the final word, or is there something wrong with it? Until um, Peter Webb in 2016 uh, wrote Imagining the Arabs, and he actually tried to see if he could find more, and he did. Uh, according to him, though, Noldeka has only six shawahid, to which he adds a seventh, uh, but I could not figure out exactly how he counted six. Uh, so some of these I think he never saw. Um, some of the Hassan verses he probably discounted because they don't speak of Arab, but Arab, which he must have read as Bedouin and therefore dismissed. Um, but he also double counted, I think, number two. So I'm not sure exactly how uh, he gets to six, but the reality is whether we have two or according to Webb, in fact, two of these only are free of serious problems. And I admit uh, quite a few of these are very problematic, like the one by Zuhair, for instance. But some of these that got the ax, I mean, they really are deserving of more thought. And some of the problems that Webb points out have answers. Uh, but be that as it may, whether we have two or seven or 10, it remains the case that Arabness does not seem to have had much currency in the pre-Islamic period. Uh, and when we see late texts such as the Aghani, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. But the reality is that we can probably triple Noldeka's list if we include derivatives of Arab that are not commonly thought to denote Arabness, but in fact uh, do, as I will argue today. So this is a, a fragment from the Mu'allaqa when it's considered as such by Abid ibn al-Abras um, in which he says, he mentions a, a number of toponyms in three verses and then he says, an arda and kafahibirrin, there is not an arib left there. Laysa biha minhum arib. This kind of uh, negation of the presence of any arib is a common topos throughout the Arabic poetry, and I will propose that this arib is not any different from what in modern Arabic is in Arabi. Uh, Lyle uh, translates this, and incidentally, Lyle, as he points out very nicely uh, in his introduction, these two diwans of Abid ibn al-Abras and of Amr ibn al-Tufail are amongst the most reliable diwans attributed to a single poet that have come down to us. So he, he translates it here as no soul is left of them there. This is the translation and meaning, and it's perfectly accurate. That is exactly what the poet wants to convey. But the word arib should have an actual meaning besides kind of the sense in which it's used. And that actual meaning is certainly not any man. Al-Khansa <coughs> Uh, is a Mukhadram uh, poetess of Sulaym. And so she says here, uh, A desolate ruin, not an arib residing there in times of hardship or ease. Uh, this occurs in Tha'lab's commentary on Khansa's Diwan. And he says something very interesting. If you see here, he says, 
من يتكلم بالعربية إن عريب is someone who speaks Arabic but this definition is really almost unknown in Islamic tradition um, Al-Azhari whose dictionary is probably the most important single uh, uh, work of its kind written in the 4th century he says all he has to say about this term is Laysa fiddari aribun is an idiomatic expression by which is meant there is no one in the dar, no one in the land. Uh, Zabidi, who writes Taj al-Arus uh, in the 18th century CE, he adds that Arib is the equivalent of Mu'rib, and both of these are not to be used except negatively. Very strange thing to prescribe. But if we go back to Khalil in his Ayn, he also knows of Arib only as used in a negative expression. But he's aware of a different or maybe original meaning, ma biha arabi. So he considers it equivalent of uh, an Arab. And these expressions, so in this case we have ari, but in another case we have a number of other terms, tu'i uh, and shafar and dari, etc., all of which seem to have been kind of forgotten over time. Their intelligibility is reduced to just this type of idiomatic usage. And so there's a degree of fossilization here, but there's also, I think, a degree of error. Uh, if you see on the right, Al-Asma'i says, in this report attributed to him, he says, So he's saying this is the correct expression and not this, which is a very different thing to say, but I think it has been misunderstood and so led to this kind of rule that Zabidi proposes. Um, and you can see this is a list of all the terms Zabidi says are equivalent in meaning to Arib and are only known from this same kind of expression. And many of these terms, I'm very certain, actually had very different meanings that are basically lost to the lexicographers. And Arib uh, does not occur at all in, classic, uh, in Islamic era poetry. Uh, this is incidentally, this is the cover that I used for the presentation, and you can see here, uh, right there is the verse, and this is produced by a Mustafa al-Adham, who died in 1933. He, he rendered it as Uraib, because he didn't know the word Arib. And I, I don't know much about this Adam. Perhaps he didn't know Arabic poetry very well. But the term has basically lost its intelligibility, more or less. It mainly figures in Islamic times as a proper name. So if we see here in this poem from the Mufaddaliyat, this poet says, and he's Tha'laba, uh, either of Bakr ibn Wa'il or of a different tribe, Abd al-Qais. He says, أخي وأخوك ببطن النسيري ليس به من معد عريبه. So he says, my brother and your brother, which is a common kind of uh, literary device to say you and I, and to, and to speak of battle. So let's meet in the belly of a Nusayr valley, where there isn't an arib of ma'ad to interfere with us. Now here again, it is, he's using it in the negative sense, but it's very valuable because he's saying, there is not an arib of ma'ad. So an arib can be of ma'ad, 
But maybe an arib can be of kinda or of madhij. So arib is a type. It's not a proper noun. Whereas ma'ad is a proper noun. And the same poet, oh, yeah, I somehow skipped this. So the same poet, uh, earlier in the same poem, actually, he says, even if an arib shall wrong me, he shall remain to me, or I shall nevertheless treat him as if he were more, most dear and close. So he's very gracious, has, has these great manners. Then he very graciously invites the same arib to battle. That is at least, that is my reading of it. He's saying, any man, if any man shall wrong me. But the commentators actually have something else to say. They say this arib is his horse. Another one says this arib is some man. But nothing in the poem actually alludes to that. And I think there's a degree of unwillingness to see this term being used outside of the idiomatic expression. No, notice he does not negate uh, here the presence of an arib. Okay, so finally we have the Rumma, who's not a pre-Islamic poet by any means. He died in 117 of the Islamic era. But he's very well known for preserving that same pre-Islamic classical idiom. And he says here, A'arib, not Arib, A'arib, Turiyun, which Abu Amr uh, basically interprets as wandering, people who just wander, they have no destination. So if we accept that, we would read it as wandering A'arib who avoid every town, afraid of what may befall them. And he's alluding here to the idea of the desert as a place of salubrity and the town as a place of illness and plague. Uh, something Lawrence Conrad has discussed extensively. But here, Arib uh, is, I think, the plural of Arib. I mean, this is not something anyone has proposed. In fact, the lexicographers tell us, this is, sometimes they tell us, this is the plural of Arab. So Arab is already a group. It's already a plural. And then this is a compound plural. It's a group of groups. That is, uh, you know, I think to be rejected out of hand. And I think this has much to do with just the antiquity of this term. But a fa'il form like arib would produce a plural just like this. Whereas that this is some kind of compound plural, I think is just uh, being creative and trying to figure out what it means. Okay, so the term arib uh, to conclude is much more reliably attested than Arab and really changes kind of our perception of what the poets had to say. Noldeka proposed that it's equivalent or comparable in meaning to Arabi. And Noldeka did this without seeing any of the verses I have just shown. Uh, and he did it very tentatively actually. Um, but he was right. I, I mean, I think he was exactly right. And the plural form Arib uh, should correspond to the same singular arib, rather than the plural form arab, which is uh, likely a dialectal variant. Actually, I don't think that any longer. So I, I, I think they were both used together by people speaking the same Arabic, same dialect. Uh, arab, however, is uh, a plural tantum, like it has no singular. And unlike the name ma'ad, arib and variant forms have no genealogical component as shown by their usage in poetry. Uh, they appear rather to point
primarily to a common ethno-linguistic identity. Uh, and so this is why they're so rare. Whereas Ma'ad designated a large tribal confederation, and so uh, it's frequently attested in poetry, terms such as Arib had little utility in the paradigm of personal or tribal identity. If someone belonged to Tamim, for instance, they were no less or more foreign from someone who belonged to Sulaim than a Persian or a Roman. It, it was your tribe that identified who you were. Um, so we can see that Arabness was very much known to the pre-Islamic poets, even if it did not have the same significance it acquired in Islamic times. Possibly the decline and extinction of this older terminology is related to the generation of a new Arabo-Islamic terminology in which Arabness was no longer related to the production of Arabiya, meaning a common language, but to an ethnos, an Arabi ethnos. So I'm going to continue now to look at Arabness rather than Arabness. And so while Arib falls out of usage in Islamic times, Arab actually becomes a very important term, and it becomes kind of a legal term that defines someone's status. Uh, in Umayyad times, to take to the desert and have an independent life outside of the town was criminalized as ta'arrub. Um, and the main view, you could say, goes back to Azhari. It's, it's encapsulated perfectly by an Azhari. So this is the classical view of Arabiya. One says an Arabi man to describe a Bedouin, a Bedouin, someone who seeks pasture and land where rainfall has collected, whether he be one of the Arab or their Mawali. So even Mawali, in, in the time of Azhari's writing, were typically not even Arabs. They, they didn't have a proper Arab descent uh, pedigree. So he's saying there's no genealogical connection whatsoever. The plural forms of Arabi are Arab and Arib. Now this is, sounds, uh, you know, what he's saying is reflecting the reality of spoken Arabic at that time. But this is not actually, this is a vulgar, uh, derivation. Arabi cannot derive from Arab, in fact. You cannot have a common noun that produces the singular nisba form. And the poets never use it this way. Never. It doesn't ever exist in poetry. So he, so he continues to say, whoever takes up residence in the open country, al-Badiya, or its environs, tends to a flock as do its people and perpetuates their customs, then such are the Arab. So it's almost a scientific definition, almost. It means exactly nomadism. There's no linguistic component. There's no genealogical component. On the other hand, those who belong, yentami, meaning by descent to the Arab, and take up residence in fertile lands, uh, living in cities and villages and the like, then such are the Arab, whether or not they are fluent speakers of the language. So this... Uh, you will not see anything different from this in any Arabic lexicon produced after Azhari's time. In fact, Azhari is frequently, this passage is replicated with or without attribution in all of them. Um, regarding the Quran, he says, one, this is the verse, the first verse we looked at, that the Arabs should not claim that they are believers. He says, these are a people from the Bedouin Arabs who came to the Prophet at Medina seeking charity and not actually having any interest in Islam. 
and thus God called them A'rab. Notice, to say that God called them A'rab is making a very different comment than saying A'rab means Bedouin. It's almost impl implying that it has some other meaning. And those intended in uh, the other verses, such as 997 at Tawbah, they are of like character. We also find Azhari claiming that Arabia can be relinquished very easily, where the people of the Arab who reside in the country to come to the city they, and, and assimilate, they are called Arab and no longer called Arab. Okay. But a very different view uh, does exist in the literature. And this is that Arab is actually a plural of Arab, and it means the full expanse of the tribes. So Al-Wazir Al-Maghribi in his Adab Al-Khawas, he writes, he, he, he uh, lists 13 distinct etymologies and ways for Arab, and he weighs the evidence for each. And based on the frequency of attestations, he prefers the view that the Arabs were called that for their linguistic ability, that basically Arabness is connected to the production of language. And he says about Arab, though he's very careful to not speak of the Qur'an at all. He doesn't bring the Qur'an into his discussion whatsoever. But he says the uh, word Arab is used to denote the whole of the Arab. Al-Lafifu was sawad al-Qaba'il. Based exclusively on poetical sources. This is this, also the view of a Tibrizi, who is yet later, um, 5th century, Hijri, and then Ar-Radi al-Astarabadi, who is 7th century. And these are very late, but uh, it, it, they are views to be taken very seriously because these authorities were not interested except in the linguistic dimensions of these terms. They were not trying to apply it to the Qur'an or to any religious text. Um, and Tibrizi is probably one of the most acclaimed commentators on poetry, pre-Islamic poetry. So he says, A'arib is the plural form of Arab. And Arab is the plural form of Arab. People differentiated between the two meanings by relegating Arabi to one who possesses a sound Arabian pedigree, even if he resided in the Amsar, the garrison towns. And the Arab were identified as the people of the Badia, even though the linguistic basis of the two terms is one. However, it seems that a distinction was drawn between the two similar names in order to achieve greater precision of meaning. So I'm going to look here at some uh, verses that actually substantiate precisely what we just read. These are not actually cited by those sources. And these are, in every case, Islamic era poets. Okay? Uh, Arab, the word Arab, to my knowledge, is never used in pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, but these are people writing in the early Islamic uh, era, and ostensibly their understanding of Arab is, ex is precisely what we see in the Qur'an. Um, I will say Hassan ibn Thabit, like this, this verse, for instance, this poem, is very, a very doubtful attribution to Hassan. I mean, his corpus in particular is plagued with problems. But in many cases, to, to use the poetry as a linguistic proof text is really not a problem because poetry required the poet to confine himself to this classical idiom, and they rarely deviate from it. 
So he says here, our swords and lances, we made for them a shelter and refuge from the aggression of the army and the Arab. So this collocation of army and Arab does not fit well with us reading uh, Arab as Arabs, right? Because the army obviously also comprises Arabs. So here, it would be fair to say, it's implying that the Arab are Bedouin, some kind of mercenary unit or auxiliary, auxiliary unit or something like that. But like I said, this, this verse is really not, this is as uh, Walid Arafat has shown, this is written by a much, much later Ansari poet and is not from Hassan's time. So the verses we will see now are roughly an increasing order of reliability. So Hassan, he says here, Hassan is, is the quintessential Mukhadram poet. He was the Prophet's own poet. And he wrote poetry before Islam and after Islam. So he says here, uh, they targeted with their attack the Prophet, gathering against him the people of the town and the Bedouin of the Arab. Notice if, if you're saying if the Arab are Bedouin, he would be saying the Bedouin of the Bedouin. Right? In another poem, he, and this was cited by Noldeka. Noldeka cited this one and the next two. Uh, so he says here, وَشَرُّ مَنْ يَحْذُرُ الْأَمْصَارَ حَاضِرُهَا وَشَرُّ بَادِيَةِ الْأَعْرَابِ بَادِيهَا So the vilest amongst the settlers of the garrison towns are their settlers. So this is a lampoon against Hawazin, one of the great confederations. And the vilest Bedouin of the Arab their Bedouin. Now, he could easily say, The vilest of the Bedouin are their Bedouin. But he, Arab can only be intelligible here if it means something else, something besides Bedouin, meaning just as Wazir al-Maghribi, for example, if we insert his definition here, it's the expanse of Arabic tribes, Arab tribes. So he's saying the vilest Bedouin of the different tribes are their Bedouin. Hassan also has a lot of poems that celebrate the Ghassan uh, to which he was attached, uh, the, his tribe was attached to the Ghassan who were uh, Roman clients. And these are usually thought to be amongst the most reliable part of his whole corpus. In fact, however, this poem is probably not written by him but by uh, Abu Norman, uh, Bashir ibn Sa'd, but that really doesn't uh, take anything away from its value because that's, this is contemporaneous with um, Hassan. Very likely it's a case of a, uh, the more acclaimed poet's name being attached to a less illustrious poet's name, just to promote the poetry. So he says here the water, alluding to the Ghassan, Ghassan were frequently given this uh, metaphorical kind of treatment in poetry. It hurried by night, then alighted at Yathrib near to dawn, and in the land through which they coursed were Arab in the desert and at their camps. Okay, so the water, he says about it, Arrasat bi Yathrib wal Arabu badin wa Now if Arab here means Bedouin, he would be saying that the Arab, the Bedouin, are Bedouin and settled. Right, um, And in fact, this is a conservative rendering of it. I mean, it's possible that the, the bad, because Badawa, or to be Bedouin, 
it wasn't considered as something entirely separate from the lifestyle of the settled. There, the, 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 there was a, a lot of porosity between these. And this was more of an activity than it was a state of being. So someone is out at the desert or someone is at their camps, which was considered being settled. And then they would go back to being Bedouin again. But he may very well be speaking about Yathrib, which is pre-Islamic Medina, in which case he would uh, possibly be saying that you have Bedouin peoples and you have settled peoples, all of which he calls Arab. And so the final shahid, I think, is the most valuable of all. First of all, this is a lampoon, uh, a lampoon with purely local relevance. This is, uh, it's not really conceivable someone would uh, produce this kind of poetry after this time, much less attribute it to Hassan. Uh, it also does not make use of any cognate of being Bedouin, Badawa, Badia, nothing like that. So this is directed at Al-Harith ibn Hisham ibn al-Mughira, who is a, a Meccan Qurashi. Uh, he says, your meanness makes it evident your mother was not born except of a mixture of the vilest of Arab. So he's pointing out that your lineage is mixed and impure because your mother's lineage. I mean, people insult people's mothers, I guess. This is just what, what people do. Uh, so this person he is alluding to is Asma, the daughter of Mukharraba, who is Amr ibn Jandal of the uh, Nahshal clan of, of Darim. I don't know if you can see the very top. And Darim is of Tamim, one of the largest and most powerful tribes in North Arabia. So what he's alluding to is according to Barkoki, who writes a commentary on this diwan, he's alluding to a genealogical defect that lies two generations above. Lampoons were usually based on uh, exposing mathalib, which are defects that are almost always genealogical. So this Asma was uh, allegedly the daughter of a slave of Taghlib called Uqab and was appropriated at some point by a Kalbi called Al-Furafisa ibn al-Ahwas. So on that you can see poem 178. Uh, and actually Kister, uh, MJ Kister wrote an article on this topic called On the Wife of the Goldsmith from Fedek. Um, so this person who appropriated this girl fathered with her an unnamed daughter whose ownership while a slave woman passed from the Taghlib to the Kalb and then she would come to be the wife of um, Amr, okay, and the mother of Asma. <coughs> Excuse me. So, whether and uh, that uh, you know whether this story is to be accepted at face value or not, the point is that why is this woman of this clan being associated with this term Arab, right? And so if we try to insert Bedouinness in here, it makes no sense at all. It makes absolutely no sense. To think that your mother was not born except of a mixture of the vilest of nomads does not make any sense. For one, uh, this tribe, so Arab, the term Arab in Islamic usage is always negative. 
It's always negative. There's, there's no positive connotation to it. And this tribe, Darim of, uh, of Nahshal, was considered immensely prestigious. Many of the uh, Muhammad's companions had brides that were of precisely this tribe. So there was nothing, uh, there was no stigma attached to the tribe. However, if we go by Barkuki's explanation, it would seem that it's a uh, stab at his lineage because of the very fact that his, this mother of his or grandmother of his, uh, the sexual defilement of this woman made her, his standing, her standing and then in, by consequence his standing, uh, precarious. So he could not claim a clear lineage. So it remains possible to force a reading of these kinds of uh, poems, uh, uh, to force a reading of Arab in Hassan's poetry is Bedouin, but the poetry does not allude to any concern with Bedouinness. And such a reading appears to pervert the intended meaning of the poetry. We come up with things like this, the people of the village and the nomads of the nomads. And we come up with, and the nomads are nomads and settled. Or your mother was of a mixture of nomads. Nomadism, uh, no, you know, uh, Exogamy was practiced more by the settled people than by the nomadic people. Uh, on its face, it makes no sense to bring up nomadism here. And so those who opposed Azhari were speaking of precisely such materials as we have just looked at. And they did not consider, as Azhari did, how the Quranic Arabia was impacted by the definition they proposed. Uh, and so it would appear that Arabia really did not acquire the meaning imputed to it by Azhari until some later stage. Okay, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna bridge a little here. I'm gonna bridge a little uh, and run through this. So here's a painting that we will pretend is called Oranges on China. Okay. Okay. Uh, what is common about these two terms? Anyone can take a guess? And I will give you a hint, okay, for the non-Arabists. And Arabic is called Burtukal in Arabic. So if we think of Burtukal and China, what do these have in common? Okay, well, if you think of something, let me know. Otherwise, I'll give it away <laughs> soon enough. Okay, so this is what Arabia looks like today as far as language is spoken. The blue, it's all Arabic. But on the right, you can see there are these pockets of other languages that remain spoken today in South Arabia. And these go back to a time of immense linguistic diversity. Uh, in the South, uh, what the Greeks thought of as Arabia Felix, this was not Arabia, really. This was not the land of the Arabs. They did not consider themselves Arabs. They did not speak Arabic. Uh, and even in the north, you had many different strains of either dialects or languages that uh, uh, were in the desert, in the oases, and they were not necessarily related uh, very closely to each other. Uh, one of them is Safairic that you see here. And so we've had immense uh, growth in our study of Safairic texts. Uh, one of the scholars who is at the forefront of that is Ahmed al-Jallad, who recently published two Safaitic texts for the first time in which someone uses the word Arab as a means of self-identification. 
So this person whose name is the Haban, the son of Yamrik, etc., etc., he camped and took possession of the watering hole the year thirst afflicted Arab. His brother Muqim, notice it's the same pedigree, he also says that he camped and took the watering hole the year thirst afflicted Arab. So Arab is used here. Um, Jalad concludes basically that this is good evidence to conclude that it's not only an exonym. People did identify as Arabs. It wasn't just a term applied to them from outsiders. But on the question of whether Arab in these texts uh, pertains to Arabness or Bedouinness, he remains more equivocal. Perhaps he proposes the common lifestyle of the Safaitic Bedouin is what led them to conceive of themselves as Arab. Uh, he does, however, observe that there is no evidence in these inscriptions to indicate that there is any dichotomy between nomad and settled. And he also observes that there are a number of indications that the language spoken by the Safaitic Bedouin was thought of as Arabic. It was called Arabic. So I would rule out entirely that Arab here means Bedouin. It means Arabs. And part of the evidence is what just preceded, um, that the Arab are a conglomeration of tribes of Arabs. Right? Drought did not strike just one tribe. It struck everyone in the region. This is exactly where you would use that term. Another reason is that the poets never seem to, they don't evince any kind of recognition of themselves as nomads. And this isn't very different from ourselves today. We are all settled people. We don't really pay attention to the fact that we're settled. But if we see a Bedouin group, we become obsessed with the fact that they're Bedouin, that that becomes exactly who they are. And the poets were just like that. They had words for settled people because they had big, tall buildings. They watered crops. They looked different. And so they, they paid no attention except to what conflicted with their own worldview. Their own poetry, however, was aimed at, just like the Safaitic text, they're aimed at a local audience to be consumed by others who are just like them. In South Arabia, and I, I will probably run through just a f two examples, um, we have many, many texts in which the Arab feature as part of the... Now, we're not looking at Safaitic now. This is the Musnad script or the Safaic script from South Arabia which goes back to the 8th century BCE. This text is Iriani 32. It comes from the mid or late 4th century. It describes the war for the conquest of the Hadramaut. And this is a time in which the different polities in South Arabia, if we go back to this map, you see here the Minaeans, the Katabanians, Hadramaut. Uh, they were employing large numbers of mercenaries from North Arabia. And these were called, most frequently, Arab. So scholars, I think, uh, have been impacted by the fact that the meaning of Arab in the Quran, in Islamic usage, is very stable, as it's presumed. So some, such as Muhammad Bafaqi, he says, every time you see Arab in a South Arabian text, it means Bedouin. But Jan Retzo says, every time you see Arab, it does not mean Bedouin. Christian Robin Meanwhile, says both meanings can coexist. And that the term Arbin usually implies nomads or nomadic warriors. 
but Arab means just Arabs. And I think this is a much more realistic scenario, but I have an intervention there as well. I don't think Arab ever means, means Bedouin. It evokes with Bedouin, but it never means anything except Arabs. Um, so this text illustrates perfectly what Robin is saying. The fluidity in the usage, if you compare. So this is uh, Sa'd, uh, of the, he was the Kabir of the Arab, he's the chief of the Arab, of the king of Saba and Kinda and Madhij. Everything is transliterated directly, so the vowels are not there. Um, but if you see the bold text, I'm going to compare that with the, and there's bold text down here and at the bottom, and I'm going to compare that with this underlined text. Notice here, contingent of Arbin. And notice here, 300 Arbin soldiers. On the other hand, Arab of the king of Saba, Kinda, Najran and Siflin. Siflin we know very little about. But this underlined portion would suggest that these are Arabs who have fealty to the king of Saba and belong to these different groups, meaning they are a part of these different groups. Because Kinda was an Arab tribe, Najran, they were Arab-speaking populace. But when he uses Arbin, they are a type, a contingent of Arbin, Arbin soldiers, right? So the problem is, however, Arbin shows up where you would expect Arab, and Arab shows up where you would expect Arbin. If we go back to this um, inscription from the Temple of Awam, Maharam Bilqis, which uh, goes back to actually the 7th century BCE, but in this case our inscription is from the 1st century, this person is speaking about nomads. We know that because he was dispatched to the land of the Arbin in order to seek out and seize some Bedouin auxiliaries. I mean, the term Bedouin auxiliaries, that is all indicated by the term Ashab, which in Arabic would mean people who accompany you. It has the same meaning in Sabaic. So they captured these people and they confiscated the riding animals and they marched them back to uh, so these people were not happy with whatever job they had been given. You can see that the Sabaeans are kind of lording it over them. This is a much earlier stage when probably interactions with North Arabians were much less. So notice the only time any derivative of Arab appears is to describe the land of the Arbin. And a final pair of texts comes from the opposite end of our spectrum, from the 6th century CE when a monotheist Himyar had basically achieved full dominion over the south. These are two authors writing about the same events. They say, I was standing on guard with the tribe of Hamdan, citizens and nomads, Hagirin wa Arbin. It must be the participle because of how it's used with the Arbin, something I have not seen attested anywhere else. And then Reichmann's 508, instead of Arbin, he uses Arab. So I will propose I propose that it's a matter of usage, not a matter of meaning. And that both terms were actually considered 
synonymous. You can see the two authors are using both the two different terms to say exactly the same thing. Right? So one is saying, I stood guard with the Hagirin and the Arbin. The other one saying, the, the settled of them, the Hagiruhumu and the Arabumu. Mirroring precisely in Islamic times the antithesis between the emigrants and the non-emigrants, the Muhajirin and the Arab. So both derivatives really are used in a manner that implies a military function. Any neat distinction ultimately proves unsustainable, whether it's the military aspect or the Bedouin aspect. Um, and these ideas, the military role and the Bedouin character, they have a dedicated vocabulary. Uh, I'll just say this in kind of summary form. You see actual, there's an actual terminology for those meanings. But Arab may satisfactorily stand in for camel-mounted warriors or something like that if that is what they typically did. Uh, and so, you know, the increasing reliance of the South Arabian polities on Bedouin troops, I think, strengthened this association and resulted in this stereotypical kind of conception of the Arabs. Uh, most of our epigraphic materials come from that time of intense interaction, late second to early third century CE. Every uh, inscription I just showed is from that period, excepting the very early one. And so by the fourth to sixth centuries, the Arab tribes such as Kinda and Madhij were increasingly enmeshed in the Himyarite south, and this stereotype was very widespread. And so you can see it's amplified to where and I'm going to ask, once again, the China and Orange question very quickly, but I'm giving you a, a clue here, where something is turning into something else. Okay, so anyone have the answer now, now that we've gotten this far? Is there an online answer? There's, there's one um, suggestion, oranges originally come from China. That's almost there, but, uh, but, but, but no, the, ch the China comes from China. Right, so, so, okay, I'll, I'll give it in just another moment. So this is how the North Arabians imagined themselves, or this is how they depicted themselves. Okay, this is a chariot, and you can see how, notice how the, the horses are painted in this very idiosyncratic way. And, of course, the camels were an emblem, and have always been, of the North Arabians. And here is another one for good measure. So what I'm suggesting is that the Arab are to the nomads, what Portugal is to the Portugal, and what China is to the Chinese. At some point, the Portuguese started importing this fruit. It was called Portugal because it was the Portuguese fruit. And when you ate it, you thought about that fact. You knew that it was the Portuguese fruit. But today, you could talk about Portugal and Portugal in the same breath, and no one would draw any connection because the fruit has the name has become its name, and that's it, mm -hmm. right? And the same with China. China was, originally, you could not have China except from China. It had to be from China. Today, it, has the, it doesn't have that meaning at all. Uh, so what we're seeing in these inscriptions, I think, is the beginning of that process where the noun, the proper noun, is being turned into this generic type. But it's not a process that is ever completed. Uh, and so, How were the two divorced? I mean, how did we arrive at the Islamic usage of Arab? 
And as I said today, I, I didn't cite any traditions, any exegetical traditions, any legal traditions. But that is how, in fact, we understand how we arrive there. Um, I don't know if I can show this. It's too small, really, to, to make sense of. So let's not do that. So in summary, Arabo-Islamic identity took some time to congeal. And this pr process was shaped fundamentally by two things. One is the Ridda, in which a number of tribes who had claimed Islam either uh, decided not to pay taxes or they followed anti-prophets uh, who competed with Muhammad, or they had never really abandoned their paganism at all. Uh, and this occurred towards the end of Muhammad's career and took up the caliphate of Abu, Abu Bakr, who, who uh, was victorious against these tribes and successfully conquered them. And thereafter, the conquests of Mesopotamia and Persia and uh, forays into Byzantium. At this time, Arabness really came to mean something very different because the typical subjects of the Arabs were non-Arabs, right? And so by the turn of the first century, Arabness could be juxtaposed with foreignness, ujma. But this concept had no place in tribal Arabia. As I said before, a Tamimi was no more or less foreign from a Sulami than he was from a Persian or a Roman. Tribe, one's tribe was all the nation or ethnos or polity that one needed. There is a sensitivity perceptible in the Quran and Islamic tradition against this kind of uh, very close bond to one's tribe. Uh, for instance, one of it's perfectly illustrated uh, by the experimental policy that Muhammad established in Medina by which you did not inherit except by choosing residence in Medina. So someone, someone's father would not bequeath his own son even if they both were Muslims, unless they both resided in Medina. Okay. And the early caliphs definitely went much further by, in fact, uh, intentionally destabilizing the tribal structure, by encouraging the abandonment of a nomadic lifestyle, and even by forced settlements. And so coinages such as Arab as Bedouin and Ta'arrub as Bedouinization they belong really to no earlier stage than the caliphate of Umar and are likely even later. I mean, in the first case, it is likely later. In the second case, it is certainly later. And so someone as late as Tabari, who died in 311, he's talking about the verse in the Quran in which God is uh, speaking about the Ridda to come. It is a prophet prophecy of the Ridda to come in which the Arabs revolt. And God will deliver them by sending a better people. So Tabari prefers that these people are the Yemenis. He says God made true on his promise. And he delivered the Muslims by way of the Yemenis in the time of Umar. The Yemenis' position vis-a-vis -vis Islam was the best, for they were supporters of the people of Islam and much more beneficial than those who apostatized after the Prophet. The scum of the Arab and the coarse people of the country 
who were a burden upon Islam and not a benefit to it. So even at this very late stage, the connection of the ridda to this title still has echoes. And so what, what, what do we get from Arabness being inserted into the Qur'an in this way? If Arab means Arabness, we have to conclude that Arabo-Islamic identity, not Islamic identity, but Arabo-Islamic identity was not a fundamental part of Muhammad's vision of the new community. Only an Islamic identity, devoid of any kind of real connection to an ethnic group. If at all Arabness was a component of the early Islamic polity, it was restricted to affording a privileged status to Quraysh, to recognizing the military strength and prestige of the dominant tribes. And in fact, this is where we get a very good explanation for why the Quran is so harsh against the Arab. Muhammad's actual policy was to um, attract the chiefs of the tribes. He gave them great gifts, camels, hundreds of camels, uh, lands of grant, a policy that made many very uh, unhappy. It's, I think, very plausible that the kind of rhetoric against the Arab in the Qur'an is giving the uh, stick to which the carrot was actually the policy of what was called ta'lif al-qulub, the softening of the hearts by giving these gifts. Um, possibly, Arabness has something to do with whether or not you belong to the ancient religious classes of Homs or Hilla in pre-Islamic times. I, I won't get into what that entails exactly, uh, but it's interesting to note none of the tribes that are called Arab in the exegetical tradition. There are about eight tribes that are typically associated with the verses. They all belong to Hilla and not to the Qurashi uh, coalition or the Qurashi group that belong to Homs. But is Arab really a type at all in the Quran? It's very possible that it's not. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to consider both options and, and I don't really conclude one way or another. But the masking of individuals' identities and groups' identities is characteristic of the Quran. Quranic titles are almost all extra tribal. And they center on acts of piety or impiety. The muhajirun are the emigrants. The ansar are the helpers. Th those who make a big show of giving and being pious, they're actually hypocrites. And the mu'awikun, dhalimun, etc. So the ambiguous term Arab was likely understood by the Quran's audience as directed at certain groups uh, due to events that had transpired. To mention those names would have been permanently offensive. I mean, the tribe's name would have been blemished. So it's not at all surprising that the intent is purposely concealed, but it was probably known who the addressees are. The exegetes think they know. I think that's very plausible. It just keeps going, doesn't it? <laughs> and so to the degree that Arabia comprised a distinct type, if that is the case, it would have denoted tribal groups that maintained their internal hierarchy and semi-independence. So these groups who played a very important role in early Islam, they all had their own chiefs. They didn't live in Medina, and their allegiance was still to their own tribes. The full believers were those who had relinquished their natural ties of fealty, either by emigrating and settling in Mecca, 
or by becoming committed helpers of the Meccan immigrants. So the obfuscation of tribal identity that the Quran intends to do, it created the opportunity for the term to be remolded to fit later substantially different circumstances. Bedouinness in the Quranic period simply did not matter. And with that, I arrive at the end. Thank you very much. and provocative and thought-provoking um, presentation. Um, let me first solicit questions from the room and then um, yeah. we'll go to the online audience. So are there any questions from participants here? Yes, please. Thank you. That was uh, a very uh, intense presentation. It's lovely to see Polaritis work. Uh, how do you make sense of the distinction between the root word Arab and, and the Bedouins in uh, Surah 9? It, it occurs in two instances, I think, in Ayat 101 and uh, 120. Mm -hmm. um, what's your reading of that? Are the Bedouins separate from? The Arab, if you're saying that that root word is applicable and identifying right. Arabs generally, what's going on there? How do you how do you understand? Yeah, thank you for that question. If if I understand correctly, I think what you're asking is uh, there's an implication in the Quran that the Arab are not the the people in Medina; that they're excluded from the Arab. Is that is that? Uh, may I read the verse? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I have uh, Abdul Halim's translation. Uh, Desert Arabs. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the people of Medina and their neighboring desert Arabs should not have held back. Right, da, 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 da. Right, okay. right, right. So it's that distinction between right. the Medinese and the group that you're in. Right. So in Arabic, you can say, for instance, um, and mean by it not that all the young people went to the souk but only three specific ones you can do that I think that's what's happening here when the Quran is speaking of Arab everyone knows that it's speaking of certain specific groups who are intentionally not named and probably well, the exegetes uh, like to propose Juhayna and Muzayna. They, they mention those two very often. In specific verses, they mention Asad. In specific verses, Tamim. I mean, it usually revolves around these four groups. Now, Juhayna and Muzayna were very loyal tribes, very loyal tribes. They did not participate in the Ridda. They never deviated, basically. They were always true to their uh, you know, uh, attachment to, to, to Islam. Uh, it would make a lot of sense if, in fact, groups like that are intended here, because it's only to those whose fealty is basically confirmed that you can use such a harsh rhetoric and expect them to fall in line rather than rebel, which is, I think, kind of what's happening here. 
I don't think these are real opponents. I think these are laggards or people who were somehow deficient in showing up on time and, ha and having all the, you know. And so it was understood by everyone, and the verse alludes to the fact that they are Juhayna and Muzayna, because these are tribes who lived in the vicinity of Medina um, who are being blamed for their actions, specific actions and specific groups. Everyone knows what is being talked about. And I think that is what fits. To think that this is speaking of nomads at large, I think is absurd. I mean, why? Why? Why should this verse and other verses like it be directed at all? Of, you know, I don't think nomadism has anything to do with the picture at all. Other questions? I think we have a few questions uh, from the online audience that also revolve, uh, are close to uh, Dr. Hajiani's kind of question in the sense that if uh, Arab are used as people who are outsiders, yeah. uh, what does that tell us about the identity of the prophet and his followers? Like how would they, were they also Arab? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, it's possible that the Quran is just going out of its way to conceal the identity of who is being spoken of. Uh, and so it's always understood the Arab are those, those, those Arab, right? In which case, we are also Arab, right? Is, is part of that implicit understanding, meaning if you live in Medina, you are still part. But it is also possible that Muhammad, uh, at least, or everyone in Medina, or some number of Muslims, conceived of themselves as, as just something totally different, something that could no longer be spoken of uh, and attached to Arabness. And if this is the case, I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence that is suggestive of that, right? I mean, the, the, the Quran does not call anyone anything except almost that the term is brand new, right? Muhajirun, Ansar, Hijra, uh, for instance, has, has no uh, importance in, in pre-Islamic poetry. No one's talking about Hijra, but a Hijra in the Quran is one of the greatest acts of piety. And a muhajir is like the believer par excellence. So I think it is, uh, and the fact that um, one did not, so many of these Medinans had uh, either wives or relatives who were Ju of Juhayna and Muzayna. They were intermarried amongst each other for many generations. And they were their allies even before Islam. Um, and the exegetes reliably inform us on this point uh, that in the early years of Islam, one could not inherit from such relatives, even if they were Muslims, because they didn't live in Medina. You had to live in Medina. So I think this kind of, it fits with this kind of state of affairs that you would think of the Arabs as something else altogether. We are, we are just, we are the believers, period. And so that's, that's I think, uh, one, one way of reading it. Thank you. Uh, there, is one, uh, there are a few questions from, uh, actually, Professor Zalantin, who is, uh, who's joined us online. And one of them is that, um, he says, I find almost all of this very persuasive, but you mentioned some caliphs took steps against tribal structures, perhaps only the tribal structures of others in order to strengthen their own tribes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not, uh, e even, even not just the caliphs, but e like I said, even, uh, even though Muhammad had this 
attitude towards tribalism. And there's, there are many traditions, I mean, which, which of them are uh, to be accepted as plausibly uh, genuine or not is, is not a question to get into right now. But I think, uh, by large, this is an attitude not implausibly imputed to the Prophet himself. Um, but even so, Quraysh were the preeminent tribe. So there's, there's two sides to it. Your fealty for your tribe is often blameworthy, but still you have to recognize that the Quraysh are, the, are, are Quraysh, right? Uh, so it, <laughs> it can go both ways, and if there's a contradiction there, I mean, sometimes there's a contradiction there. Uh, Omar and uh, Abu Bakr and the different caliphs absolutely, I think, uh, recognize the status of Quraysh. Um, and uh, were very lenient with, with the Meccans in line with the, the Prophet's own policies. But they were very hostile in some ways, Omar especially, to uh, many of the tribes who moved to the new garrison towns. And he split them up in a manner that really um, uh, just kind of disrupted their whole structure. So the tribe has to be together, for one. He, for he forced them into different groups which obviously uh, you know, had a negative impact on the cohesiveness of the tribe. Very good. Abdullah Galadari has, has, one, uh, has a couple questions. I'll, I'll read one of them which, in which he has a, uh, an interesting suggestion. So he first says, Thanks, Rashid, for a wonderful, insightful talk. Just a crazy food for thought. Not that I agree to it yet, but it's just something <laughs> that came to my mind. The root Arab in many Semitic languages, su such as Ugarithic, Aramaic, Hebrew, Phoenician, and Gaias can also mean a guarantor or a trader, from which even the Arabic arbun, meaning deposit, is derived. Is it possible to think of the Quranic Arab as guarantors or traders, especially when taking into context verse 11 in Surah Al-Fatih, Surah 48, where the Arab uh, expressed that they were busy with their money, shafalatna amwaluna wa ahluna, I think. Yeah because Bedouins would not have typically used money but cattle to trade or as a status of wealth. Many religious traditions usually viewed rich people negatively and perhaps the Quran is no different. Wow, yeah, wow. Well, that's, that, uh, and thank you, uh, thank you, Abdullah, for, for that. Um, and I'm not surprised that you have this very provocative view. Uh, the issue with that, without giving it a lot of thought is that Syriac Arbun is Arabized very superficially. Okay, it has no verbal form. So in Arabic, yes, to give someone a down payment that remains with them if he choose not to purchase is called an Arbun even today. But there's no verbal form for that. Mm -hmm. No verbal form. So I would just on the face of it, I would say this: uh, the Syriac usage cannot it has very. Uh, has very limited currency in Arabic. Um, and this is a typical Syriac usage. Uh, like they have verbal forms for it. So that's that, and this, there's a separation here. And another thing I should clarify is that I have no idea where the name Arab comes from. I don't have a claim as to what it originally meant. It could have been a mountain called Arab. It could have been anything. I don't have a clue. I don't think it really makes a big difference. I mean, the word Arab goes back so far uh, that, but only this word is used to describe this people by all these different cultures. Every other word is always local, right? So um, that, 
and as Michael, uh, MCA McDonald's has argued, that is good evidence right there, that this is what they call themselves. And, the, and that's from where the language has its name, et cetera. And so this connection to language, the production of Arabiya, it sounds banal, but I find it convincing. I mean, this is what everyone has always said. Uh, I mean, this is what the lexicographer, lexicographers will tell you. They're Arabs because they speak Arabic. Of course. Uh, it's not of course. I disagree with the of course, but I do conclude that, yes. However, they don't say Arab has anything to do with that, of course. Right? So that's where uh, the deviation is. Excellent. How, how much time do we have? It's 129. 129. So maybe I'll field one more question, which is um, uh, Holger has asked. Um, um, you know, if you could comment on what either kind of Peter Webb's um, theory or Andrew Marsham's or even Robert Hoyland's reading of Arab in the Quran as vernacular versus Ajami as sacred language. So we, any of these that you want to comment on? Uh, hmm. Well, I, I think there's a, the phenomena that all of those scholars have noticed are, are, are obvious. I think, and we all have to, we can all appreciate that. There was a process of ethnogenesis in which Islam really transformed what it meant to be Arab. Uh, but to go so far as to negate its existence previously, uh, as if it came out of this kind of vacuum and, and just developed in Islamic times, and then some imagination of Arabness was then retrograde, uh, you know, retroactively projected to the past. Uh, I don't think the sources support that. I don't think the sources support that. And so what Arabness meant uh, transformed radically. Ujma and Uruba to me is, is so thinly attested in this kind of antithesis that I really have no opinion on it very strongly one way or another. But that one is means sacred language. Perhaps it does in some contexts, but does it mean that always? That I find, uh, I find problematic. Right. So, so once again, in some cases, the very banal uh, explanation is still, I think, a good one. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you. If uh, anyone has a question that I couldn't address, I would be happy to uh, take an email. Excellent. Um, so please yeah. feel free. I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all the questions online. Uh, feel free to reach out to Rashid by his email address. And I will send all the questions in the Q&A right to Okay, excellent. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.